the children can be released for Children's Church. And the rest of you can get out your outline and your Bibles. Very chaotic, and uh, I get pretty nervous, but uh, it comes off, and it's, it's a joy to work with the teens in this church. Do we have any Seinfeld fans out there? I know it's been off the air for a couple years, but I remembered the last episode of Seinfeld, and I knew that it tied into the sermon somehow. So I Googled it. I just wrote Seinfeld final episode, hoping it would kind of refresh my memory, make sure I got the facts right on what happened. Here's what I found. The last episode of Seinfeld, emblematic of the series as a whole, magnified the discursive relationship constructed between text and viewer. In so doing, it illustrated the way that hypermediated relationships serve as the locus of community in contemporary culture. I posit that Seinfeld's postmodern stylistic devices, self-referentiality, intertextuality, parody, and play with the sitcom form called attention to its discourse or mode of addressing viewers as much as its narrative. Clear? I thought I was reading one of my seminary books, but then I realized where I was. And apparently Seinfeld was much more brilliant than I gave it credit for. Or I just didn't understand it. I thought it was a show about nothing. <laughs> but if you remember the last episode, the, the series finale, it had huge drama leading up to it. It had the four characters, four main characters, Jerry, George, Elaine, and Kramer, leaving New York City, and they end up in some small town, and somehow they get out on the street. I didn't get back and view it, so I'm kind of doing this from memory. But they go out, and they actually witness someone getting mugged. And they start cracking jokes, laughing about it. I mean, they see this all the time, and they just think how funny this is. What they didn't realize was that this town had just passed a law called the Good Samaritan Law where you had to help someone in need, or you'd go to jail. And so the rest of the episode is their trial, and they bring in all the past characters, and it was kind of a fun, I thought it was a good way to end the series. But I also thought it was an interesting look at what would happen if it was actually a law, that it was enforced that we had to be compassionate, that it was the law that you had to stop and help someone when you saw them. And as believers, what commands us to do that? So it brings us to our passage this morning. We're going to be looking at 
the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus didn't call him the Good Samaritan, but we've known that. And this parable is probably so familiar to you that it doesn't shock you anymore. It may not challenge you anymore. But as we listen to it, as we dive a little bit into it, I pray that you would be challenged again and see it in a new light. So if you have your Bibles, pull them out and uh, let's look at Luke chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. And don't keep your eyes right on your Bible the whole time. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. I don't even know why it took me so long since I'm a registered genius. I have a 3.0. 2.0? I got street smarts. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Spoke me. That doesn't change anything. Then he put the man on his own donkey. It doesn't change anything. It didn't affect me. It didn't affect me. Um, why are you doing this to me? Took him to I an inn and took care of him. <laughs> I know. But if I... What, what do you want me to say? Did it change me? Well, it didn't. It didn't. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. That's the truth. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Just to bring things to life a little bit. Make sure you're awake. Jesus always told parables for a reason. We're not always told the exact context, but here we have this story set in the context of a man who comes to Jesus and tests him. And he asks... What should I do to inherit eternal life? This isn't the only time Jesus has been asked this. But this was a lawyer, probably more of a spiritual man who knew the law of the Old Testament. And so Jesus sends the question back to him. How do you read the law? What do you think it says? And the man answers well. Love the Lord your God fully. He says, all your heart, soul, mind, strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus says, good. Do that and you will live. But the man doesn't stop there. And that's what brings on the parable. 
He says, who is my neighbor? John Piper says that another way of asking this lawyer's question would be, teacher, whom do I not have to love? Which groups in our society are exceptions to this commandment? Surely the Romans, oppressors of God's chosen people, and their despicable lackeys, the tax collectors, and those half-breed Samaritans, surely all these are not included in the term neighbor. Tell me just who my neighbor is, teacher, that as I examine various candidates for my love, I will be sure to choose him alone. I'm sure the man was hoping that Jesus would narrow things down for him. I thought it was interesting because he doesn't try to, I thought the harder part of that verse is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You wanted anything narrower. Maybe make that one a little easier. But he goes for the second half of the, of the passage of his answer. Narrow this down for me, Jesus. I don't think I can love everybody. Give me a smaller group of people. But Jesus does the opposite of narrowing things down, doesn't he? And rather than answering the man's question, this parable poses a challenge from Jesus. Are you willing to help anyone, anywhere you come across? In fact, the question has been turned around on the man. It's not, who is my neighbor? It's, will you be a neighbor? My Greek professor is also the uh, OPC pastor here in Leesburg, Chip Hammond. And uh, he likes to uh, teach us things outside of Greek and give us a few words of wisdom for the pastorate. And one really stuck in my mind as he told us that oftentimes we approach the Bible in the wrong way. We approach the Bible as a reference book, as an answer book. Have you seen the website Ask Jeeves or Google, the search engines? We approach God like that. We say, God, you have to answer my questions before I'll believe. We're like Job. God, if you would just explain my suffering, explain to me why you're doing this, just answer. And yet, time and again, we see that God does not answer all of our questions. Certainly the Bible has excellent answers for so many things. But when we come to to God, to Jesus, with that set of conditions, I think more often, he says, look, here is who I am, and now I've got questions for you. How are you going to respond to me? Are you willing to believe me in faith without all your questions answered? Will you be my hands and feet to those around you? And that's what God does. That's what Jesus does for this man. He turns it around from answer to a question to a challenge. And that challenge is to us as well. So let's look at the, the parable, the story within the story 
that Jesus uses. On the face of it, this parable could be set in any time or place. In fact, I read a few years ago a CBS anchorman and journalist, Hugh Rudd, was attacked and mugged and beaten outside of his apartment complex in New York City. He was beaten so severely that he couldn't move or talk beyond a mumble, but he was still conscious. And he said he lay there for eight or nine hours as people passed by. People were leaving the theater, walking past him, people coming home. The milkman came, so maybe that's a few years ago. But nobody stopped and asked him what had happened. No one even tried. So this could have happened anywhere, anytime. But Jesus does set this parable in his day. And it's worth noting a few of the details that he gives. Um, The road from Jerusalem to Jericho... Jerusalem is about 2,300 feet above sea level. The Dead Sea area near where Jericho is is about 1,300 feet below sea level. So we're talking about a drop of 3,600 feet within a 20-mile commute. That's pretty severe. And it was a treacherous road. It was a difficult place. And robbers, attackers, could easily hide there. I think when Jesus told this story... No one was surprised. I mean, it would have been like us saying there was a soldier traveling from Baghdad to Fallujah and he was attacked. I don't think anybody would be surprised by that. And we have this man who was attacked and beaten, maybe within inches of his life, left for dead. And we have these two men that come by. The priests were the ones authorized to offer the sacrifices in the temple, to intercede for the people. We see a lot of examples of priests in the scriptures, Aaron, Melchizedek, high priests. The Levites were like the priests' helpers. In one commentary I read, they were, they were said they were one part elder, one part deacon, one part worship leader, and one part custodian. The temple worship was dependent on both of these offices. And Jesus doesn't say why these two passed by this man. Uh, Some have suggested that since Numbers 19.11 says that if you touch a dead body, you are ceremonially unclean for a week. But the problem perhaps is that they are leaving Jerusalem and going to Jericho. So that probably indicated that they were leaving the temple not going to it. That may have been. But whatever the reason, it's enough to know that these two men had affairs, concerns, schedules, and safety issues that outweighed any concern or compassion they had for this man. So they passed by. And there's one man left. Now, Jesus is the master at getting his audience thinking one way and then pulling them and shocking them another way. I was reading through the the 
parable of the prodigal son recently with a high school student. And we talked about how Jesus seems to be setting up that parable so that the audience that he was speaking to was thinking that the father was just going to beat the son into submission. I mean, he sets him up. He's, he's this selfish kid who takes all the money, goes out, spends it all on wild living. Finally, he totally disgraces himself, feeding pigs, hits rock bottom, runs out of money, finally decides to go back to dad. And you got to think that the audience is rooting for dad at that point. They knew what this, this kid had gotten himself into, and they were ready for him to get beaten up and uh, put in his place when he came back. And so is that much, that, was that much more shocking when the father runs out to meet his son and to lavish gifts on him and to forgive him? And I think something like that is happening here. Because I think in the audience's mind, they're hearing, okay, these really good guys, this priest, this Levite have passed by, and then Jesus mentions that there's a Samaritan coming. And I would think that in their mind, oh, well, if the priest and the Levite didn't stop, there's no way this guy's stopping. He'll probably finish him off. He'll probably stick a dagger in this guy and walk right by which makes it even more amazing to them when the Samaritan does what they don't expect. You see that Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. To the Jews, there was no such thing as a good Samaritan. Um, The Jews remembered their history. 400 years before this, they had been captured and sent into exile in Babylon. And the Jews had remained racially pure. But the Samaritans were the offspring of the Jews who had intermarried with the Assyrians. And the Jews held it against them. The Samaritans had built a rival temple on Mount Gerizim that the Jews had destroyed. Jewish travelers had been murdered in Samaria. And just the chapter before this happens in Luke 9, Jesus was heading into Samaria and they wouldn't let him through. And if you remember, James and John say, Jesus, let's call down fire from heaven and burn these guys up. Jesus rebukes him, doesn't do it. But there is so much anger and hatred between the two that we can see why the Samaritan is the last person they would have thought to stop. And help. But the Samaritan, of course, is the one who shows real love and compassion to the man. Not only does he bind the man's wounds and help him immediately, he secures his lodging for the night. And not only does he secure his lodging that night, he secures it for the next maybe couple weeks. Indefinitely, really, if he turns him over to the innkeeper and says, listen, if this isn't enough, I'll come back and pay the rest. I believe he wanted to see the man all the way through to getting better. One of the things I love about stories 
novels, movies, is that it's a chance to test how I would react, how I would function in situations. I heard one person say it's, it's testing your emotions offline when you're not in that situation. How would you react? And I try to think, if I was Tom Hanks in Castaway, would I make it through being on a desert island by myself for three years? Would I have the strength of William Wallace to free Scotland? (laughs) We can see that in the scriptures too. Would I be courageous enough and humble enough as David when he was confronted of his sin, of adultery with Bathsheba? Would I be willing and able to humiliate myself and confess my sins? Would I have been like Peter in the garden, going after the Roman soldiers, defending Jesus? If you remember Nathan Clark George, who we brought in in concert in March, he had a song called, What If I Was in the Garden? Would I have run the other way? And it's a question you can ask throughout Scripture. Would I have responded to Jesus or would I have been a Pharisee and rejected him? And I think this parable begs us to put ourselves in it. Would we walk right by or would we go to the trouble to help this man? So as we transition to our response to suffering and sin in this world, we certainly have the possibility of seeing someone beaten and hurt and laying along the road, but I I haven't encountered that very often. I don't know about you. I've seen stranded motorists, sure. But let's, let's look at a few examples and try to come up with some things that you might be dealing with. Things that may happen in your lives. Let's try a few scenarios. First one, your coworker is getting divorced and is really having a hard time with it. She comes to work angry and depressed. The second one, those of you in college or going off to college, you've got a someone on your dorm floor who you watch week in and week out, gets drunk every weekend, and you often see him with a hangover on Saturday, Sunday morning. You see them miserable until it's, it's time to party again. And third one, neighbors of yours are shocked when they find out that their son has been expelled from school and arrested. And they literally do not know what to do or how to help him. Maybe there's other situations you are dealing with right now. Either in your family or another family you know. Maybe call up that situation and think that through. But I want to talk about four responses that we have. That we can give to suffering in the world, and to unbelievers who are reaping the consequences of their sin. 
the first way we can respond, uh, like a good preacher, I've, I've given them all eyes, so they all have the same letter to start with, so hopefully they'll stick with you. The first one is imitation. We can see the sin around us and want to be part of it. Even though maybe in our heads we know this isn't the safest or the smartest thing to do. It is tempting when we see others sin to join in. Galatians 4.9. Do we have that clicker? Here, I'll... There we go. I'll just point to you, Rick, at each one. But now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? There's always a battle with our sinful nature and our flesh. And when we see others sinning, we are tempted to be pulled into that. Our second response, indignation. You can just go to a blank slide in between them. What do I mean by indignation? Feeling righteously judgmental and looking down on those who are involved in the sin. It's saying you sinned and you deserve what you're getting. We can judge anyone for their foolish behavior. I mean, we can blame this coworker that I talked about who was getting divorced. And we can say, hey, it takes two to tango. This marriage falling apart is just as much your fault as it is your husband. You deserve what you're getting. We can look at the parents whose son is arrested and expelled and say, gosh, you should have been better parents. If you brought your son up right, if you disciplined a little bit more, if you brought him to church maybe, maybe he wouldn't be in this situation. Or you can look at your college dorm mate and say, what do you think is going to happen if you drink all weekend? Of course you're going to be hungover. Don't throw up near my room next time. We can be righteously indignant at people's sins. And certainly there is a place for us to speak truth and help people see where they are messing up their lives. But Jesus had a hard time with those who looked down on others. You remember the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector? Luke 18. They both go to the temple. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, the Pharisee. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself 
will be exalted. It's really hard for people to see Christ in us when we're standing over them saying, you deserve what you're getting. It's really difficult for people to grasp the gospel when we only offer them judgment and not mercy. And it's impossible for people to grasp grace when we don't give it to them. Paul says elsewhere in uh, 1 Corinthians, he's teaching the church how to deal with people inside the church who have grievous sin. And he stops and says, but you're not to judge the unbeliever. In 1 Corinthians 5, 12 and 13, he says, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And so there's a real sense that we're to look and say, unbelievers don't have the Lord. What do you expect? Of course they're going to have sin in their lives. And to stand over them and judge them and be indignant is just as bad as the next one. Our next response is indifference. We see people suffering the consequences of their sin, but we say, it's not my problem. I've got enough on my plate without adding you and your problems. And to be honest, I don't really care about you that much anyways. This is the priest and the Levite. Whatever other motivations they had for passing this man, ultimately it came down to, you're not worth my time and my attention. They were indifferent. And what I think is really interesting is that they were in the same position we're going to be in when this service is over. They were probably leaving the temple after having worshipped the Lord, as we will be when we leave here. Will what we hear and pray and sing here change us so that we are not indifferent to the suffering of others? You remember when Jesus talks about the end times in Matthew chapter 25, he's, he says there will be a judgment, a separation of the sheep and the goats. And the sheep are the ones who know me and do what I asked, and the goats are the ones that are not. Matthew 25, 41 through 44. Jesus says, He will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me no food. I was thirsty, and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger, and you did not welcome me. Naked, and you did not clothe me, sick and in prison, and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them, saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Jesus lets us know in no uncertain terms that we cannot ignore those around us. 
the least of these we do unto him or we are indifferent to him. But the final response that we can have, and you could probably title this a few different ways. I'm going to call it incarnation, just to stay with the I theme. But I think that's a powerful concept because it's modeling ourselves after Jesus. Incarnation, we know, we talk about that at Christmas time, that Jesus took on flesh. That he took on human form. God saw a bunch of wretched sinners, us, reaping the consequences of their sin, both here and for eternity. And Jesus came down to our level and redeemed us. And so being incarnational is following Jesus' model. I'm a, I've been a wildlife leader, which is part of the ministry of Young Life, for a few years now. When I go to the leadership meetings that they have, they talk about incarnational youth ministry a lot. And they've taught us that incarnational ministry for youth ministry means going to where kids are, getting involved in their lives, so that they trust you and that they know you speak truth to them because you love them. Ultimately, of course, pointing to the gospel and God's saving power. But how powerful it is when we become, when we go as God's, as Christ's body, his hands and feet. I think this is where we break free from a lot of just sterile Christianity just keeping the rules, Christianity, where we don't want to get too close because we might get corrupted or we might not be safe. But we go down on people's level and we love them through the problems they're dealing with. What would it look like if Christians modeled the Incarnation? To unbelievers. Instead of judgment, anger, or indifference, what if we came alongside unbelievers and each other and loved them through the messes in their lives, the consequences of the sin that they've brought on themselves or that others have brought to them? Let's think back to our hypothetical situations. I would think. Every one of us knows someone who is going through divorce, been divorced. They need someone to listen. They need someone to walk them through this. They're going to need someone to help them get on their feet and deal with this. Obviously, if you have the chance to share scripturally why marriage is sacred, take that chance. But love them no matter what the outcome is. What about the college guy who's always getting wasted and ruining his time in college? Um, there's a singer, a Christian singer named Jennifer Knapp, who this is uh, actually her story. She was a 
hard partying college student. And she said she was an alcoholic midway through college. And yet she had a group of Christians who prayed with her, prayed for her, shared the gospel. She didn't want to hear it at first, but then they walked her through getting off alcohol. They sat with her as she shook from the withdrawal for weeks. They prayed her through that experience, and she said she saw Christ through them and eventually came to accept his love. The parents of the child who was expelled and arrested, I mean, there are no guarantees of our parenting styles that this couldn't happen to every one of us. We need each other's support. They need someone to listen. They need resources. They need prayer. They need someone to go along that that son or that daughter who's getting in trouble and disciple them and love them. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2 sums up some of these ideas. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Another scripture, Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of man and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. That's the incarnation. That's Jesus coming on our level and submitting himself to pain and humiliation. And we can model that for unbelievers. Before I wrap up the sermon, I want you to meet a friend of mine named Larry. And if we can get a straight story out of Larry eventually, we'll hear about incarnational ministry. Hi, my name's Larry, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm an overeater. All right, I'm a liar, but nobody knows, because I'm so good. I got skills. All right, everybody knows, but it's not my fault because, you see, I was born this way. I had a rough childhood. All right, it makes me feel good. You'd let me just tell my story? So there's this guy at school, they say. I don't know if I'd be able to pick him out of a crowd. Maybe if I saw his picture. All right, he sits in front of me in English. Real religious guy. Can't say two words without saying how tight he is with God. So there I am, chilling with my girl. (laughs) Hanging out with my boys. All right, I was in home ec. (laughs) Don't laugh. 
I'm like a mean creme brulee. So I just ruined a flan, and I don't even know what distracted me. I don't want to talk about it. My dog just died. Okay, my pants are splitting up, but it's okay, because everyone knew it was coming. I knew it was coming. Anyway, so I just got an F on the flan, and I couldn't even find it in me to care. So I asked to be excused, and I went to the bathroom. And that guy's in there. I get in, and he asks, what's wrong? I figured the guy's a psychic. Or maybe I said something. I was crying like a baby. <laughs> and, I, and I said, nothing's wrong. The guy says, I'm lying. He calls me a liar to my face. Can you believe that? So I tell him, so I tell Mr. Smarty Pants what's what. I tell him, my parents are going to split. I'm, it's my fourth speeding ticket. I'm about to lose my car. I was the king of the school one week, and now I'm nothing. And I don't even know why. All right, I have some idea why. Well, I was just waiting, just waiting for him to tell me what a mess my life was and how if I got it together, my parents wouldn't split and it would be all good. But he didn't. He said he was sorry. He's sorry. What does he have to be sorry for? And then he told me bad things happened to him and the only thing I got him through it was his relationship with Jesus. And then I smelled something funny and it wasn't the toilets. Well, there I am, trying to figure out it, and it hits me. And I don't even know why it took so long since I'm a registered genius. 3.0, 2.0. All right, but I got street smarts. All right, would you just lay up that thing, please? So that dawns on me. This guy isn't trying to con anybody. What he's saying, he thinks is really true. It's a strange thing to stand in the presence of the insane. But I rose above it. I told him I didn't want anything to do with this God stuff. I said I could see where he was coming from, but I didn't want anything to do with it. All right, I gave it some thought, but I think it was because, you know, I was caught up in my emotions and stuff. Not a weak stomach. All right, knock it off. So what if it spoke to me right? That doesn't change anything. No, it doesn't. Quit it. It doesn't change anything. Why are you doing this to me? I asked him to pray for me. No big deal. No, it's not. If you know, what do you want me to say? It changed me? Well, it didn't. It didn't. Okay, it changed me. <laughs> you know, that's the truth. You know, I guess my little conversation with that guy really showed me how open I was to a relationship with God. Well, I gotta go. I got a hot date. I gotta go work at the Salvation Army. My grandma's sick. All right, I got a creme brulee in the oven. Bye. <laughs> Modeling Jesus and taking on incarnational ministry is gonna take a lot of different forms. It can be as small as just being there for someone at school. Or it can be help over periods of weeks, months, years. It's going to take different forms in different situations. 
And I'll tell you, this is somewhat of an easy message to preach, but this is a very difficult message to live. And I'll tell you, I've been in full-time ministry for 11 years, and I've been involved in people's lives from time to time. I've stepped into difficult situations, but on more than one occasion, it just got tough. It just got messy, and I walked away. There's a, there was a man that lived here in town who was handicapped and would call me once a week, actually, for a long time. And he often just needed rides to do errands, to pay bills. Sometimes he needed food. Sometimes he, he needed a loan. And uh, I did what I could for a while, but it got grinding. It got tough with the schedule. Modeling Jesus to people is difficult. And people's problems and needs aren't solved quickly. And we've got to be in it for the long haul. My friend moved to Winchester, so he's not my neighbor anymore, right? No, he still is. We are so glad that God's grace saves us, that it's not up to our obedience. It's not up to us uh, fixing the people around us, but we are called to do what we can to be God's, Jesus' hands and feet in the world, to not walk by the problems, the suffering, the consequences of other sins. We're called to get involved. And God's grace gives us the power to do that. As we pray and let the music team come up for a last song. Father God.